Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello and welcome to Local Zero with Matt, Becky and Fraser. We're back to fortnightly episodes now following our four-part PFER special, Prospering from the Energy Revolution. If you missed those, feel free to go back and have a listen wherever you get your pods. And as much as we love you all, dear listeners, it was nice to have a week off. This week's episode is a bit of a special one though. Very special one because any longtime listener of Local Zero will know that the submission of a certain PhD thesis has been an ongoing saga from pretty much day one. But as we revealed a few episodes ago as a spoiler, PhD has been submitted. And I'm sure celebratory pints, drinks, champagne, fizz have all been consumed and Fraser is ready to dive back into the content. So for that reason, our guest this week, also our host, soon to be, actually, should we really say this? Soon to be Dr. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't jinx it. That's the plan. Please don't jinx it. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Fraser. So no pressure, Fraser. <laughs> Yeah, looking forward to it. So we don't normally interrogate our guests too harshly, but strangely, I feel absolutely fine about doing that this week. If you're a fan of Local Zero, do take a couple of quick seconds to subscribe and follow us on Twitter at Local Zero Pod. Or if you've made the move to Mastodon, um, then you can reach us there at hashtag Local Zero Pod. You can also find us on our website, localzeropod.com, or send questions to our email at localzeropod at gmail.com. You get the gist. On to the topic today. You must be glad it's behind you. I mean, we'll get into the questions, but how does it feel to have that weight off your shoulders? It's good. It's really, really good. It's something that had been sitting for a little while. Some listeners will know, but I, when I started the job at Regen about this time last year, it was about six weeks out from being finished and submitted. And until about Christmas last year, it was still six weeks out from being finished and submitted. So it's nice to, to have finally put the put the stop to it and and get it and get it submitted. Lots of it's already published and stuff too. It is. Um 
but yeah, definitely a definitely a good feeling. And Becky, as Fraser's supervisor, you must also be thrilled. I mean, for those listening who've been through the process themselves, it is a shared joy. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think there was so I was trying to be silently frustrated for the past year because, <laughs> as Fraser was saying, like it was so close. It was like so close yet so far. And so I'm incredibly pleased that uh, that it's finally in. There was an ongoing, almost a kind of just a really dull running joke with Becky and a few others, where every now yeah. and then they check yeah. and like, so Fraser, how's the PhD going? Yeah. And it would just in- instantly change the subject. It's like, yeah, fine. So that that weather has been just <laughs> wild recently, hasn't it? Now, for, for listeners, they can't see this, but Fraser's been a bit of a teacher's pet in that uh, <laughs> Becky is... <laughs> <laughs> Becky is donning the only, it is a unique item, this, the local zero pod mug, complete with tagline, climate action on your doorstep, which Fraser organized for Becky's birthday. This is a one of a kind. We're going to get a picture out of this because I now absolutely want one, Fraser, so you know what to get me for my birthday. <laughs> I absolutely love my mug and I need I need one in one of those reusable plastic coffee cups they're not plastic are they like bamboo or whatever because I actually I nearly dropped my mug this morning and it's so nearly no, smashed and I was very upset okay. <laughs> no I know but it didn't it survived to tell the tale and um and it good holds it was the bounceable mugs these are yeah. incredible <laughs> I think it's probably more incredible. like the bounceable floor but yeah um love my mug so thank you good now you two have been on your travels right you've been at a big innovate uk um, conference, which is very much on theme, all about the prospering from the Energy Revolution Fund, which for listeners, you've probably up to the eyeballs in, uh, in in that. But I'm hoping you heard some good things about the pod, but also you heard some good things about the program. What did we learn? What's happening out in the world of all things smart and local? Oh, Matt, it was, it was amazing. I mean, just the energy in the room was phenomenal. So it was a two-day event in Manchester, and it was really phenomenal. I mean, I think there were about 300 people in the room and then another something like 600 online. So huge amounts of interest in this space, huge amounts of energy. And of course, it was a major celebration because the PIFA program has been running since the end of 2018. So this has been celebrating the culmination of of almost five years work in this space. And I think a lot was learned. And that's really what the, the day was all about. And I think that, you know, this was almost a, a first of its kind program, the way it brought together research and actual demonstration projects and design projects and academics with industry, with policymakers, with local government, with the third sector, with community groups. It was just such a diverse audience. And I actually have to say, like with some of the stuff that came up during the conference around, you know, the ability to deploy certain solutions and to tap into flexibility and to leverage some of the market mechanisms, it couldn't be a better, you know, better timing for Offgem's uh, call around distributed flex, which was launched as we're recording this. It was launched yesterday, so pro- still live as we release it. So yeah, lots of stuff going on in this space. Glad to hear it. And I mean, one of the things I'm actually, I keep saying I'm, I'm potentially guinea pig in this world of, of smart and local Matt energy. Matt famous guinea pig. Uh, that's- <laughs> <laughs> um, I got an email into my uh, inbox yesterday and I have to say, I've completely forgotten this, that I'd signed up for a heat pump trial. Uh, I won't name the company just yet because we'll see whether it, it moves on, but it's part of the heat pump ready mm. program, which um, Bayes or now uh, Desnes 
sounds like a, a, a character from Coronation <laughs> Street, has, uh, has, is, is funding. So yeah, I'm going through the phase, uh, steps on that, but watch this space. I could be with Heat Pump uh, in the next few months. Um, I am in, the, I'm going to up you one. I am in the process of installing oh my a Heat goodness. Pump. You're always one-upping me, <laughs> Sorry, Becky. Matt. Go on, tell me, I tell me more. To. Oh, it was a disaster. We finally moved into our home and the boiler gave up. <laughs> so so we are now in a very cold home. Yeah. And uh, we decided to go for a heat pump, despite the weight, despite some of the additional costs and despite the extra challenges around install. We are we are heat pumping it. And is your husband going to install it, Becky? Because <laughs> this is one of the questions we've been having. <laughs> or at least we'll learn. <laughs> well, I'm sure he will learn. We've uh, we found a great company that are that have all the accreditation. They they do they specialize in renewable projects and they are Cornwall based. They're in fact Newquay based. So yeah. Really Did you find it quite easy to find sort of people and information and stuff like that around it? Has how's the how's the process been in, in organizing it? Well, I um I messaged Richard Lowe's who for folk that don't know Richard. Your heat pump uh, dealer. Yeah, he yeah. did a heat pump, <laughs> yeah, drop. heat pump guru. Um <laughs> just heat guru in general. So I I had emailed him quite a few times. And I mean he's been on the pod before speaking about this as well. So I have to say from that perspective, it was a little bit easier because I'd already done a bit of my research by the kind of phoning a friend option. Mm. Um, but actually Cornwall's we're pretty lucky. So there are there were there were two companies that specialize in renewable projects like that all around Cornwall. And so we ended up going with the one that was more local just because they could get to us faster. As you can imagine, it's very cold, so we want to get stuff in. I would say there were a lot of potential challenges for us, and amazingly, we've been able to overcome all of them, or at least on paper, we'll see what happens when they come to install it. But it does take a long time. You know, you've got to wait to get your grant approved and then they've got to schedule you in, which can take yeah. three or four weeks. And then it takes six days to do the install. Six days? Blimey. Yeah. We wouldn't want to do that in winter, would you? No, you you, mm. you don't want to do what we've done, which is wait for your boiler system to break before you do it. That, that's been a bit of a challenge. But, but, but as you've said many times before, <laughs> that's the natural time to do it, right? Absolutely. But you've heard it here first, listeners, if you want a heat pump, contact your local heat guru, which I think Becky is what you said. <laughs> yeah. uh, so we'll, we'll make sure and post Rich Lowe's phone number on the website after. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. Well, I, I've also got some news is that I'll be um, I'll be heading down to London uh, in the next few weeks to take part in uh, the Royal Society's pairing program, um, which is where they uh, connect. Um, ivory tower academics like uh, uh, myself I nearly said ourselves but you two have flown the nest um, yeah. uh, connect us in with uh, senior MPs parliamentarians also civil servants to learn a little bit about how each other's worlds work wow. um, which I'm I'm thrilled to be involved with so we, we get to go down to Westminster hear from some of the top brass down there and actually learn how how policy's made so I'm hoping either in the next episode or the episode after I can report back on what I found. Wow, that's exciting, Matt. That's really exciting. So you're going to do some, uh, you're going to be trying to get some influencing in? Well, I'm actually paired up with the uh, MP for Central Glasgow, uh, Alison ah, Pulis. So, um, so we'll we'll have a local relationship on yep. that on that basis. But actually, we'll go down and understand a little bit more, peek behind the curtain of of how this country is actually run. Mm, that's um, really exciting. So. amazing. And I mean, we've got some exciting stuff. So whilst you're off doing that, 
Fraser and I are actually going to be running a Local Zero live in London. Yep, yep. This is the big event. It is, it is. Happening next, is it next week? No, two weeks time. Goodness me, it feels like it's next week with the amount of stuff going on. Two weeks time. When this pod is launched, it will be next week. Um, Mm -hmm. So March 14th to 15th, we're having an Energy Rev Summit in London. And as part of that, we'll we'll be hosting a Local Zero live, which will, of course, be released through our pod channel. Brilliant. I look forward to listening to that. Sadly, I, I won't be there. I'm sure you'll have a lively audience uh, for that, as we did in, in previous times. Okay, well, without further ado, Fraser, it would seem unfair to not give the floor over to you and to give due time and care and attention to your pre-examination. <laughs> the this is a dry run. Okay, so are you ready? Uh, I am. I am. Yes. Should I do a Should I do a self ID like like all guests have to do? Uh, hello, I'm Fraser Stewart, and I'm the guy that Grant Shapps sees in his nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome, Fraser, to the pod. It's it's fantastic to have you finally on as a guest. <laughs> this is this is subject matter we've been really keen to to chew through. Now, um, I'm not going to let Becky ask the first question about what the PhD is about because as your supervisor. Uh, I would really hope she knows, um, but but for the but for the avoidance of doubt um, for our listeners, Fraser, your PhD, what is it all about? How did it come into being, and really, what motivated you to undertake it? So the the PhD um, explores inequalities in the uptake of low carbon technologies like solar PV, like heat pumps, and to a lesser extent, like you know, energy efficiency. It unpacks those inequalities and how they've sort of emerged and evolved over time beyond just income alone, looking at the, the sort of the, the social and the community factors that have, that have influenced that as well. It then bridges into um, local and community energy-led approaches to addressing those inequalities to secure a fairer transition so that people in lower-income households and communities, typically excluded marginalised groups, can also uh, benefit directly and as a priority from from those technologies as we transition to a net-zero energy system. So it's very much about inequalities. It's very much nobody will be surprised on that that just transition theme. Uh, trying to trying to understand those inequalities and and how we can feasibly rectify them with more locally and community-led approaches. This is a topic, and I'm sure anybody that's heard you talk probably ever realizes is very close to your heart. So like, tell us a little bit more, like less about the topic and more about you. Why is this so important to you? And why, you know, what motivated you getting into this space? Oh, talk about myself. I don't know about that. Oh, I hate that. No, it's, it is a, it is, it's a topic that I care about. And I think more than anything, I've, I've said this before in various sort of presentations and discussions, I'm not really an energy guy first and foremost, right? The, the sort of, I, I, I come from a good sort of proud working class community up in the northeast of Scotland. Um, and so the, the kind of the social justice side of it, the, the poverty, the inequality side of it has always been the, the, the driving motivation for that. And the, the opportunity that we have just now with the transition in the energy system, with these new technologies, with the potential for more affordable energy, healthier homes, sort of cleaner, greener uh, communities and spaces, those all have big social justice implications, right? So the motivating factor for well, for the for the PhD and the rest of the work is trying to marry those two those two big issues together: the, the things we need to do to address the climate crisis, 
with those longer term issues of, of poverty and inequality and injustice to realise that the bigger sort of social and economic opportunity that we have with that transition at this big formative moment that we find ourselves in. So it's very much driven by the, the social justice, the just transitions approach first with energy, climate, the transition as a as, a, as an opportunity to, to do a hell of a lot of good in that process. It, it's always tempting to situate a piece of work and the rationale for that piece of work in today's context. Mm -hmm. But actually, you know, when a PhD is formulated, you have to go back a few years. You commenced yours in 2016, 2017? 17, yeah. 17, okay. So we have to we have to sort of wind back the clock and think about what the world was like then. Obviously quite different from today. So the rationale for that, and I'm going to hazard a guess here, that a lot of the, the motivation around the inequalities was that many homes were taking advantage of microgeneration at that point, particularly through the feed-in tariff and RHI, renewable heat incentive, for these decentralized microgeneration technologies, whether it's electricity or heat, renewable heat. That's my hypothesis, okay. Is that, was that part of the rationale? You were seeing sort of middle-class owner-occupied homes taking advantage, advantage of these subsidies to, to draw down these technologies. Or actually, was it still grounded in many of the same issues that we're seeing today? They're just more acute in terms of people being simply being unable to afford energy full stop and not having access to that same quality of life. I, I'm, I'm trying to get into Fraser's brain. That's a scary place to be. Oh, yeah, <laughs> we, we, we don't want to go there. Um, it's it's a good question, Matt. And to be honest, it's a little bit of both. For me, it it started with the the opportunity, which maybe isn't you know the 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 truest, most um, academic way to to go about things, right? What was happening at, at that time, as as you rightly say, with the feeding tariff and stuff, was that solar PV in particular. That was that was the main thought first. Was that solar PV? was delivering a huge amount of benefits under the feeding tariff to people who could afford to to install in the first place or had the connections or owned their homes or or the, the you know the time and the capacity to install panels in their houses to then generate a lot of money and you know all the the second order the knock-on social and economic benefits that 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 brings for me the motivation wasn't ah the middle classes are running away with this we need to rein that in the motivation was well how do we how do we open that up and share that out into communities that maybe struggle a little bit more to adopt those technologies, whether that's because they don't know where to go to access grants and subsidies or they don't have the, the time or the resource. Like if you're, you know, if you're a single mum of four living in, in poverty, it's unlikely that you you have the time or the 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 bandwidth to navigate, as Becky was saying there, what can be quite sort of drawn out complex processes for grants and subsidies and things like that. And that's on the proviso that you actually know someone who can help with it, demystify the process and stuff like that as well. So it very much came from how do we understand who gets to benefit from these types of grants and subsidies and how do we make sure that the people on the poverty line, marginalised communities across the country can also access those to reap those benefits um, and improve you know, social, economic, environmental outcomes at the same time. So it was a little bit motivated by the inequality, but much more about... I think there's a big opportunity here. Let's let's try and unpack that. Mm. Give us some of your headlines. Like what what do you think some of the most important things that you've found in your work have been? So there are, there are a few. The first is that in terms of those inequalities, who who can install heat pumps or solar panels um, versus who doesn't get to, we've always assumed that it's a matter of income 
And occasionally we, we think, okay, well, people live in the private rented sector, so that means that you can't just install new technologies or whatever. We assume really, really strongly that it's about income, but actually there are massive social and informational factors that, that underpin those inequalities as well. So Becky, as you were saying about your heat pump, you knew people who worked in the space, so you could pick up the phone and say, what do I do? How do I navigate this process? Within communities, whether that's a sort of a, a street, a neighborhood or a, a local area, what the, the research, what, what my PhD shows is that where people have already navigated those processes, they know people that have navigated those processes, it makes it far easier for those people to then navigate them themselves. If you live in a lower income area, however, you are less likely to have people around you who have navigated those processes because, you know, they can be unaffordable to a lot of people or they require a lot of upfront time and, and financial resource, which means you never get the chance to have a network of people around you to help demystify that process, providing you can overcome those other barriers. So it's not just about income. There are social and informational things here as well um, that need to be overcome or incentivized to help redress those inequalities. Uh, there is there's a lot of literature that, that will also talk about these peer diffusion effects, right? So looking at it from the positive side, right? So once you do it, you see things like proliferating in a neighborhood. So you get CCPV, your neighbors might get it. You, you see it out there. And I think what's fascinating here is you're not flipping that, but you're really looking at the other side of that, which is that actually it's not just that the money's the barrier. The fact that there are just a fewer people that have done it or fewer people you know is, a, is an is another barrier that holding you back. So what we're seeing is those those that have done it, it's making it easier and easier and easier and easier. And those that haven't, it's almost like it's getting harder and harder. And so, so you're seeing that kind of even widening over time, right? That's exactly it. it. It widens over time. And this is what, not to get too academic, but in the thesis and in the published paper, this is what we call the, the feed-in tariff trap, where those, those social and informational factors where that kind of peer diffusion effectively locks in the inequality over time and widens and accelerates that inequality over time. Yeah. Important caveat and qualifier here is that this isn't an argument to stop middle-class, middle or high-income households accessing grants and subsidies to do these things, but rather it's a, it's a reason to think about, okay, well, we actually know there's this other mechanism here, this peer diffusion thing as well as income yeah. that can be leveraged to some degree to try and close those inequalities um, and to try and stimulate uptake among people who otherwise haven't been able to. So that's the first kind of chunk of the research. It, it may be maybe a different term for the same thing, but what, what I'm hearing is, so these positive feedbacks, these virtuous cycles where you have a community that has the capacity I don't like the term wherewithal, but you know what I mean here. They, they have the capacity, the knowledge, the networks to take advantage of a funding stream. They take that funding stream and a big chunk of that will be fed back into the community, which then supports their capacity building further. Then they're in a better position again to capture funding. So we have this, we have this positive feedback cycle. And you can imagine, as, as Becky and yourself have just alluded to, there's the reverse of this where you can be locked out of that and it's, it comes back to capacity building time and time again so the question here is is how do you break that vicious cycle for these um, marginalized communities well this this speaks directly to the second and the third sort of empirical the research bits of the of the thesis the second part of the thesis so my the, the theory behind it and this is where the local and community side of it comes in 
you have this issue where where lower income marginalized communities um, have less time and resource to access these things, which means they have less people that get to access and benefit from solar heat pumps, which means there's less scope for that, that peer diffusion, that proliferation. But what we've seen and what we've seen in Scotland, which act contradicts a lot of popular thinking around this, is that community energy projects, that's community-owned renewable energy projects like wind turbines up on a, up in a local green space or solar panels on a, on a school or a community building, under the feed-in tariff where they've delivered lots of benefits to the local community. In Scotland, community energy projects have located predominantly in lower-income areas, particularly community solar because, you know, there's, there's less... Um, upfront financial costs, there's there's less sort of physical barriers to, to installation on buildings and stuff. So community energy groups, obviously motivated by a drive to, to reduce emissions from the energy system, to, to democratise the energy system, have also been very, very justice-minded and brought a lot of the benefits from community energy into lower-income areas. Where the restrictions on that are is that the benefits from those community energy projects have tended to be more holistic rather than installing, you know, solar or heat pumps in people's homes. It, it's delivered through community benefit funds. So it supports capacity building. It su supports, you know, local development and, and addressing fuel poverty and upskilling and all that kind of stuff. But it's less material for people in their houses. But what this does tell us is that community energy groups and other community organisations working in fuel poverty, um, in different sort of social justice, equalities, organisations at the local level are very, very well placed to reduce the, what I've called, procedural burden, that is the need for someone to access a grant or a subsidy themselves and go through all that legal kind of bump, to alleviate that procedural burden for low-carbon technologies to support the benefit of those technologies to then be delivered into into local places that typically might be excluded otherwise. Community energy is one way of, in which this happens. The other way is other sort of local energy approaches, such as those led by local authorities, which we've heard tons about in the PFER episodes, who are able, again, to alleviate that burden and help even directly with the installation of low-carbon tech in people's houses to deliver those benefits, leveraging other funds and processes, etc. So community and local have had success, and I would argue this is the space that we want to work in to address those inequalities going forward. So I don't disagree that community and local mm -hmm. offers as a pathway through this to a more equitable way of, of accessing, of um, paying for, of benefiting from energy. But as we've had discussions about before, it isn't necessarily going to lead you to a more equitable outcome. So I, I wonder through your, your PhD work and also possibly work that through through regen as well is there a sense of where local and community may lead you into a less equitable future yeah absolutely absolutely I, I think that's a key point matt is that sort of energy isn't fairer simply by virtue of being more local while there are advantages to doing it that way it doesn't necessitate equity or fairness or justice in terms of where it could work against that is if you're working on, for instance, local energy projects that only address the owner-occupier sector, which is an important sector to address and you need you need uptake everywhere, that's unlikely, again, to reach lower-income communities that typically, or to a lesser extent, live in the, the owner-occupier sector. Mm -hmm. 
you always, in terms of innovations in the local energy space, where you're installing assets in people's houses and things like that, you always run the risk of excluding people in the private rented sector. Yeah. But crucially, because local and community energy is very, very innovative at this moment in time in particular, as we're getting smarter, as we're getting more digitalized, as new technologies come down the line, new services and things like flexibility, demand-side response, as you innovate within those processes, it's really, really important to to build sort of ideas of fairness and justice into that innovation space, right? Because it'd be very, very easy to innovate just among those first movers, those early adopters, the, the people like us on, on, on this pod who are already interested, who want to participate in innovations, who want to get involved while not including people at the, the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum to, to also participate in in those in those innovations and benefit from those innovations so it can be sort of in the innovation space it can be very inequitable unless you're innovating specifically with with justice in mind and you always again just sort of fundamentally materially run the risk in local and community projects of only involving people who can afford to get involved so a community energy project that needs buy-in financial buy-in for a share offer or something that's going to be exclusive or projects that again just don't build those those principles in from the from the get go. I think some of those innovations when it comes to the local space, like when you see those lo local authorities, for example, taking leadership and getting involved. Oftentimes, we see that that's about innovative business models to support the deployment of these low carbon techs in homes, often social housing, because you have generally a single decision maker. So. It still requires engagement. I mean, having a heat pump requires all sorts of different forms of operation to having um, other forms of heating. So there are certain things that I think, you know, you just need to know about it. You need to understand about it. So it doesn't mean people are disengaged, but the financial barrier has been removed through the business models. And the resource or capacity barrier of having to basically become an expert in this topic to be able to make the decision and invest all the time and, and resources to do that has been removed through sort of having a, a different decision maker, right? A decision maker that's making a, a decision for a whole group of homes. That's that's a different model to the community energy model that you talked about, which is where you see, say, a larger asset where members of the community might have a stake in that asset. You know, they might be a shareholder in, in the cooperative um, that, that owns and installs and governs that asset. And that's really fascinating, too, because you're removing the financial barrier, but you're doing it differently because usually people still are investing. So there still often is a, a, an amount of investment, albeit a smaller amount of investment. And again, you're you're changing the decision. You're, you're making the conversation about something other than what do I need to do in my home? Let me, let me become an expert on my personal energy consumption. And, and it feels like you're flipping the, the discussion and the engagement to something that's more you know, civic, it's more community minded, right? It's like, what do we want for the future of our community? How do we want our community to involve? And um, and I, I think it's really fascinating that both of these are addressing some of those inherent um, socioeconomic challenges that you mentioned at the beginning. Do you think that they're leading to quite different outcomes in terms of where it takes people and where people's minds are then at and, and potentially then, because I, I know, you know, a PhD is three years, right? Or well, in your case, a bit longer, but you, <laughs> 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 Sorry, right? 
Um, but you know, it's, it's a short period of time. But actually, people are on this journey for the long run, right? So, so do you think that these kind of different models, whilst both kind of a, a addressing that main barrier that you mentioned, do you think that they're going to potentially lead to different outcomes in terms of sort of where they're taking people, where they're taking people next, and where they're getting people like people's mindset? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, they do. And I think if you take it down the sort of, if you split out local and in, in community in that way, the, the opportunity with local, if you run it with a local authority, is that you can more directly, you know, install assets in, in people's homes. For community energy, the opportunity for that at present is limited. So that benefit is, is realized much more holistically. What we know within community energy, now here are, here are where it starts to layer in complexities. With community energy, that benefit is delivered in you know, local schemes and projects and initiatives, and often they're minded towards addressing fuel poverty, etc. But often, as we've joked about on this pod before, but it's from a, a place of truth, it's used for you know, repairing the church roof, or it's for football kits for the local football team. So the, the, the idea of community energy is that it very much is innovative, and it, and it is radical, and it always almost always sets out to be inclusive and socially sort of bring people into the mix and and stimulate a new way of working with and doing energy but the way that it's been realized so far that holistic benefit can be a little bit more hit and miss especially for those typically excluded communities like we say that don't necessarily have the time or the resource to get involved with that type of project what i would push back on a little bit there becky or maybe it's not even pushing back but local and community as we separate those out is that they don't need to be separated out. If you think about a local area energy plan by a local authority who they, they go, right, we're going to do heat and efficiency in this building stock, we're going to put some generation up here and EV charging here, et cetera, et cetera. There is absolutely no reason why that can't inject points of community ownership and governance within that. There's no reason that that can also support typically excluded communities into a more meaningful civic engagement process within that design to to support you know proper sort of designing the the principles and the shape tailored to to local need and with justice mm. in mind these things can absolutely work together so i think becky you're quite right to say they they have been separated out they take people down different paths what i think needs to happen and what i i think is increasingly in the frame is that these two perspectives come together so that you can leverage that you know bigger scale finance that local authorities have access to, the, yeah. the, the planning, the capabilities, the stock, the connections that they have with interested and have to be well-resourced community energy and other civic organizations to create something that is arguably the, the best of both worlds. I, I, I'd agree, Fraser. Now, I, I think you are uniquely positioned in that you have kind of one foot in the in the urban world <laughs> uh, and one foot in the rural. I think it's fair to say in that you sort of flip between city and, uh, <laughs> and the, shall we say, the leafier, greener parts of, uh, of Scotland. Um, there's something that kind of sits in the back of my mind a lot. I'm reading a fantastic book called Soil and Soul by Alistair McIntosh, who um, was heavily involved in the buyout of the Isle of Egg, commentator on democratic land ownership, lots of kind of issues that I think run through some of the, the themes that we're talking about. This book is very much from a rural perspective and talks about how that sense of community and uh, the traditions, which were very centered around the environment and circular economy, have kind of started to degrade in, in recent uh, decades, sort of very much post mid 20th century. And I can see from this rural perspective, there's, there's one narrative that's playing out. From an urban perspective, you know, when I come to energy and other environmental uh, initiatives, they're often dealing with a very different 
backstory. You know, you look at Glasgow post-industrial landscape, there's been, you know, a boom and bust cycles. You've got a very different kind of population density, a different kind of, you know, economy. I wanted to get a sense from you about the inequalities of energy and, and where you see the differences and similarities lie between rural and urban. We've got this just transition plan out from Scottish government, energy strategy too. Do we need to be thinking about these inequality issues for energy differently in these two areas, or or actually are they are they really one and the same thing? I think I think they do look different in terms of the the material challenges, not just to uptake or transition, but also to you know launching your own local or, or community energy project. If you were if we're talking about inequalities uh, rurally, you're thinking about off gas grids, you're thinking about people who are on oil boilers as their, their main source of heat and who are going to struggle to instantly transition over to to a heat heat pump for one reason or or another, who might also struggle to be part of you know a more connected sort of local energy system. So there's a it's a different inequality to in an urban area where you're you're thinking about like we talked about the private rented sector, but you know somewhere like Glasgow tenement building stock, multi multi occupancy, multi tenure, you know different combination of people who own their flats or, or rent their flats within the same block and also different structural issues there as well. So the inequalities do look different, but I would argue that the solutions are broadly the same. And we, we chat about this in the separate work that we've been doing on local and community energy as well, is what you really need is, a, is an equitable floor of support, resource, skills, expertise across all communities that facilitates the, the leadership at the local level and the community level, and I would argue uh, more predominantly shaped by communities themselves, or at least in response to community need and demand. What you need is that equitable floor so that every community is able to develop their own local or community energy project responding to that need directly. That's not to say that every community will or needs to, but in terms of addressing those inequalities, you don't have to be prescriptive to this is the one way to fix all of these you, things. You, you touch upon a real live wire issue there is, you know, the extent to which a community um, wants to engage. So they may be, they may be able, but they may not be willing. And, and I think there's an interesting question. And of course you, you say to say a community is willing, you're talking about majority, what majority, what minority. Um, I think that's a really interesting point there is that what do we do in terms of net zero and a just transition where we're trying to iron out some of these inequalities by saying we need some local community ownership, shared ownership, some some governance, some distribution of power, costs and benefits in, in a much fairer sense. But actually, you know, we've tried to engage with this community. We've we've offered them the support, as you mentioned, that kind of that, you know, that that foundation. But but they just they, you know. They're not engaging. I'm not sure we're kind of at that stage in, the, in terms of this just transition. I think there's kind of a quiet assumption that if we do the engagement correctly, and obviously the big question about like different forms of engagement, that they will engage en masse. Is this a, sh a concern you share? And if so, like, how, I mean, Becky too, you know, how, how, how do we cut that? Yeah, and I want to add to that because I think this is a, it's a really good point and I was actually like the edge of my seat. So <laughs> during, the, during the PIFA um, conference, I was on a panel with Polly Billington, who is an absolute force of nature, been on the show before as well. And we were talking about smart local energy systems. We were talking about this notion of local and community and particularly about the people at the end of the wires and, and how engaged do people actually need to be for this to work? And Polly made what I think is a really, really good point, which is that, you know, at the moment, so many people are just 
in responsive mode, in firefighting mode. They are dealing with challenges around, you know, not having enough money. The cost of living crisis has been savage. We're going to see prices continue to increase. A lot of folk are just being pushed to the very edge of where they are. And she was saying, you know, like, something like this really needs to support those people, not require them to engage further and do more and and be pushed even further. And so I think, you know, Matt, you're kind of framing this of like, you know, going to a community and, and they're not interested in wanting to engage. Do people need to engage? I mean, with community groups, it's hugely driven by voluntary, um, you know, time commitment for the most part. Mm-hmm. Does a fairer future that leverages community and local energy actually require people to engage? Or are there different ways around that? It requires us to be responding to to people's needs fundamentally, whether that in, involves you know ongoing in-depth engagement or whether that means uh, leaving people alone, broadly speaking, and assuming that we know it requires, if we want to do it right, if we want to do it sustainably, if you want to unlock those social and economic benefits, you have to do it in a way that recognises people's needs and the different needs that they have and the different capabilities that they have. I'm going to go. I'm, I'm going to slip out of my um, academic rigor here for a second and go purely anecdotal here. But I do. I do a lot of a lot of speaking at community centres, pre- predominantly in lower income areas, facilitate sessions, chat with people. I have never once been to a, a community where the idea of locally owned community owned energy wasn't received with anything but where do we start? How do we get this done in our area? It's always positive. The idea of it is very, very easy to pitch and sell. Yeah. Mm. The challenges lie elsewhere. So I think in terms of if a community doesn't want to do it, that's fine. That's that's absolutely, completely fine. That's that's on that community. But I think what needs to be in place are the the resources and expertise across the country. Now, whether that's at local authority level, at community level, or baked into existing uh, third sector organizations, community energy organizations, the the opportunity has to to be there for those that want to mobilize that. And again, we talked earlier in this interview about diffusion, right? When one community starts to do it, it makes it easier for another community close by to, to start to do it. You share those learnings, you share those processes. What's missing, and as Becky rightly picks up on, is the resource. Community energy organizations, third sector, are so often voluntary, so often stretched to the bare bones. This is one of the big requests that we would make or big recommendations in policy is that those organisations need to be supported to professionalise at scale to help link people to existing support and resources to get projects underway. On engagement, I don't think we can do it without engaging. Different engagement, meaningful engagement is going to look different for different people. I think what's important is that it's done with justice in mind, that we do it on a case-by-case approach. Um, that it recognises people's needs and circumstances, that it rewards people for their time in, a, in appropriate ways, and that it's not overdone, right? Engagement fatigue is a very, very real thing. Mm. I, I completely agree. Before you mobilise a community to do something, you know, engagement is, is absolutely necessary. For me, the, the entry point should be that a sustainability-oriented project, for me, is a means to an end. And, and so the, the question mark should really be, and I think, Becky, Fraser, you, you alluded to this at the beginning, it's almost going to the community and the engagement stance is, so what matters to you? How are your lives? What's going well? What isn't going well? What needs to change? And, and at that point, instead of asking somebody about, you know, right, this is a town hall meeting about solar PV on, on a school roof or, you know, in a more rural setting, you know, a run of the river hydro PV on a, on a plantation somewhere. 
this is starting kind of from first principles of what do we need to do to improve your welfare? And I defy anybody in any community to, to not get a very, very strong response, particularly in this day and age, about what, what they require to, to improve their, their livelihoods. And then you kind of move through those options. Okay, right. So, so we've identified from, from this engagement that these are the, the key live issues. What can we do? What, what would be the best use of our time, capacity, money to meet those needs? And, and that's a very different type of engagement to saying, you know, how big should the solar PV array be on the town hall? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's, this is something that we've been wrestling with, uh, Becky and I in particular recently, is that mm. you you can't go in prescribing one way of doing things, right? Which is why when we say um, community energy or local energy approaches, we're not talking about one model or, or one way that things can work. We're thinking about, you, you might be talking about solar PV on the school. You might be talking about um, battery storage in, in people's houses or, or energy efficiency. You might be talking about um, energy advice and advocacy and fuel poverty support and in, in, in other forms or bringing all those things together. The key thing is that you're not going in and say, I've got this thing, how do we make it work for you? But rather we're going in and saying, there's a, a range of different things in this space that are happening. What is your situation? What's happening? And how do we build from there up? And when we think about the goals of any project or the, the beneficiaries of any project, if you bake in a power imbalance right at the very beginning, you say, we've got this thing. How do we make it work for you? Or even worse, we're doing this thing. How do we get you to say yes to it? then you've, you've automatically blown any chance of real equity out of the water with that. So it has to be that way led. That comes down, does it not, to who, who is responsible for leading the engagement? You know, is, is it fair to say you need somebody to go in there who is, you know, is objective and unbiased, that is also trusted and also, crucially, knows what they're doing, that they are informed about participatory methods for, for community engagement, that they're being led by the community rather than leading the community. I mean, what does that, if you agree with those, those principles, who, who should be doing this, you know? Because it doesn't feel like I've ever been engaged on these issues in my local neighborhood. Yeah, no, it's, I, well, I think increasingly as, as we do more thinking in this and more work in this, I feel more and more that this is where the role for community energy organizations, not necessarily projects, um, but also civic third sector organizations have a role to play. I want to qualify that by saying nobody is expecting them to play this additional role or hold these additional expertise at the moment in time. Cost of living, energy crisis, year-to-year uh, -year, hand to mouth funding, these, these organizations are stretched beyond belief as it is. The resource just isn't there just now. But with adequately resourced third sector organisations working in their local communities, minded towards this, whether that's a fuel poverty charity, Matt, like someone like South Seeds, imagine what South Seeds could do in that local area if they weren't relying on, you know, year to year sort of competitive patchwork funding to, to get things done. So consistent core funding for third sector civic organisations that know their communities well, I would argue is a really, really good starting point. So, Fraser, the most important question of all, how important was Local Zero in helping you whilst you were doing your PhD? It was essential. <laughs> it was basically my whole PhD. I never actually read an article. <laughs> um, I just <laughs> collected zero data. <laughs> all of my references are just the back catalogue of, of Local Zero. It's just a link to the, to the episode page. Can you do one more thing for me? Can you sum your PhD up in 30 seconds? My PhD explores inequalities in the uptake of low carbon technologies like solar PV and heat pumps. 
and unpacked ways to rectify those inequalities at the local level through locally owned, led and delivered and community owned, led and delivered energy projects. Fantastic. Fraser, congratulations on getting it in and good luck with the Viva. Thank you. Um, which I don't know when it's scheduled for, but I'm hoping if it's in Glasgow, we'll uh, we'll see you after, hopefully for some celebrations. Absolutely. Um, thoroughly enjoyed that. Good luck with it. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks. Don't you guys normally do like a game at the end of every episode? Am I not getting to, <laughs> to play that this week? Yeah, you just can't get the host these days. Our, our, our co-host hasn't written a few future fiction, sadly. Um, but we'll have words. We'll have words. You've been listening to Local Zero. If you'd like to read a little more about my PhD, if that interests you for whatever reason I can't imagine, links to already published sections will be in the show notes of this episode and the full thing will be available in due course. Absolutely. Thoroughly recommend a couple of the papers there, so so do do that. A polite reminder then once more that if you haven't already, please, please subscribe to the pod wherever you get your podcast from. Find and follow us at Local Zero Pod on Twitter or email us at localzeropod at gmail.com if you want to share some longer thoughts. And if you have a spare minute, please do leave us a review if you can. It really helps us reach new audiences. And if you know anyone who might enjoy Local Zero, we'd love it if you could send us their way. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Produced by Bespoken Media.